0: In the backyard, particularly in warm weather, my mother would recline on a plastic deck chair. If it was really hot, she'd have her legs laid bare and her shirt rolled up to reveal her belly. All the better to soak up the sun. Us boys would be playing cricket in the backyard. The batsmen would have to read the rise of the ball as it bounced off the sloped and lumpy lawn trying his luck every time he slashed that weapon of carefully shaped Kashmiri willow. If it was a Saturday, the commentary we heard on the radio had nothing to do with our sport. The announcers there would be rattling on with a narrative of the races happening around the country, telling in their idiosyncratic style which horses were currently running and where they were placed. My mother put money on an assortment of horses each weekend, Calling into the TAB, she gave them a four letter code with which she identified herself, and which she recited with a certain sing song cadence that still easily comes to mind. After that, the conversation with the betting agent was curt. She'd just name the style of bet she wanted to place and the horses she was backing, but it all sounded to my ears very mysterious and possibly magical. There was also the list of race tracks and betting deals to memorise. Places like Doomben and Randwick and Moonee Valley, where my mother might be hanging her hopes on a Quinella or a trifecta or a daily double. So, a childhood lesson. To court luck, one must learn an arcane language. Must speak indirectly. Must have undergone some sort of initiation. When, once in a blue moon, mum won something, it was as though the sun shone in a different way for her. She has always been the most pessimistic person I know, although thinking back on the bets she made, I can only wonder at what secret vision she held clandestine in her head throughout all those years. Meanwhile I was left to the vicissitudes of our backyard wicket. There seemed no greater injustice than when the ball hit a small tussock of grass, kept low, and made the metal stumps behind you go ding. Even more cruel was the other sport I played as a kid, Aussie rules footy, in which the central object is an awkward oblong-shaped ball with its own unpredictable free will, bouncing like a living being across the field watching it spring skittishly away from you often enough could provoke even the most stoic eight-year-old to resign themselves to fate. Any sport in Australia is associated with betting, and no doubt I saw and heard thousands of enticements to take a punt throughout my childhood. Yet I haven't once. Unless you count the odd raffle which I have very occasionally won, my rewards as various as a platter of meat or a ukulele. But as a kid I did turn my love of sport into games of chance. I learned a version of making up the results of fantasy football matches with a deck of cards, and a type of cricket that was played exclusively with dice. In fact, I remember one summer as a teenager, entirely friendless and depressed, in which I set up my bed as an arena for this dice cricket, and scattered those talismanic cubes, tallying up the scores and placing them next to the names of batsmen from England or Zimbabwe or the West Indies, against Australia, of course. For whom, of course, I allowed the occasional sleight of hand, somehow cheating in this solitary game to ensure I got the result I wanted. Perhaps I was not, from the very first instance, ever so willing to give myself over entirely to fortune's movements. And this was before I'd even heard the cautionary tale of an ancient king in India, Yudhisthira, the oldest brother of the Pandavas, who at his consecration failed to win a royal dice game. He too was permitted to cheat, and yet he was still defeated by chance. The dice were agents of a different destiny, which were in control all along, whether the royal family liked it or not. It was the beginning of one of the greatest wars in all of literature. And had I known this story, I might have been more careful. The lesson is that it is possible to be beaten by any game, even, I suspect, dice cricket. Because chance will take any invitation, however minimal, to invade your life and set you off on some alternate direction. So it strikes me that every plan is a gamble. And in that case, maybe I have made some of the wildest and most irresponsible bets of them all. I put a lot on the line in order to pursue certain dreams, dreams not of owning a dishwasher or a BMW, but of attaining a certain way of being. A friend of mine once told me the keenest advice I ever heard, for my career at least be good and be lucky. And I empathised when I heard a fellow storyteller in Edinburgh reflecting on his life thus far and comparing himself to a racehorse who has left the blocks with all the others but isn't looking so crash-hot yet. He looked at me and said, Would it not seem to most punters that we were the wrong horses to have backed? But like me, I think he was counting on at some point. A lucky break. A year ago we were all facing the abyss, wondering what would happen next. It had become apparent that the rules and rhythms we'd been following so far were about to change. A mate of mine said it was like that kids' party game. It was all a matter of where you were when the music stopped. All sorts of plans and intentions were tossed aside some for whom the sailing had been smooth, were suddenly assailed with gusts of out-of-season wind from unexpected quarters. I was ambivalent about my own fate. Yes, i lost some work, and it seemed that i had chosen fields of employment that were fairly precarious in the face of a pandemic. On the other hand, I had a little bit of money stowed away, saved up for travels elsewhere, which were of course now out the window. And I had good health, self-directed tasks to go on with, and plenty of books. And I had this quiet shack, a converted train carriage in which I lived alone, a place to sit and think while I was out of work, while we were all in lockdown. What I wouldn't have guessed is how soon my little life would become enviable for almost anyone in the world. Australia is one of those places that likes to call itself the lucky country. A claim which is sometimes credible, but perhaps never more so than now. Of course, there are plenty of Aussies who have suffered a lot over the last year. But right now, there are certainly worse places to be. I've thought this often over the last month, especially here in Tasmania. Because I've been working pretty much flat out at music festivals. Standing on stages, introducing a diverse cast of acts. Performers wielding various instruments singing stories from the world over, inspiring connections between strangers, and carrying on with fairly raucous after-parties as well. But it's best not to talk too freely about your good luck, and in most cases it's felt like we've scraped through by a bee's dick. And I will add the caveat that this strange season is not over yet, As we have seen, things can change quickly, the circumstances keep mutating, and by now we've lost all trust that anything's going to pan out as planned. Still, till now, topography and pure chance have combined to make this little island at the bottom of the world a fairly fortuitous place to be. Better than the Himalayas, I suspect, which is where I'd originally planned to be and where I still may well be stuck if I'd followed through with my agenda for autumn 2020. From the very beginning our lives are shaped by things beyond our control. First of all, we are born as someone we didn't choose to be. The genetic material that makes us is hardly anything but a matter of pure luck, is it? Likewise, our place of birth is not a decision we get to make, and yet that fact marks so much of our lot in life. We do not choose our parents, our siblings, or any of the first acquaintances we make. Again, I can only say that I am one of a fortunate few who was born to a friendly family in precisely the place where I want to live. It seems an increasing number of people wish they'd been born somewhere else, and their progress towards that other destination is often an epic story, one which requires great fortune along the way. Over a hotel breakfast somewhere in the Balkans once, a woman said to me that all you need in life is a nice smile and the right passport. But both of these are bestowed at birth on some people and not others. I used to be heavily burdened by a belief that there might be a fateful circumstance hidden in every moment that each situation could ramify into countless opportunities. Happenstance was my personal deity, and it was an idea that had a powerful influence on my life. For example, at a house party in Launceston, I met an exchange student who was leaving the following morning. She said I should visit her in a far off city, and wrote her name in cursive on a scrap of paper. I warned her that I was the sort of person that would take this invitation seriously that it could easily seem to me a message or a moment of destiny. She said she understood. Her name, she told me, meant Vision. And some months later, I was on a plane going to visit her. I thought then on how slim my chances had been to meet this woman called Vision and all these occurrences. These intersections of longitude and latitude seemed like the outcomes of a crazy lottery I'd been entered into. Thus, even on ordinary days, when maybe I missed the bus, I wondered if I hadn't in fact missed the chance to encounter something else like this, an event that would change my life. And when faced with a decision between two destinations, I might struggle to figure out which would bring about the greater fortune it became even a big deal to decide on which pub to go to. Sitting in my train carriage shack, having largely watched a pandemic pass over the earth without making too much of a dent on my own life, it's hard not to think about how much of life is about being in the right place at the right time but I've also learned that it's bloody ambitious to try and guess where the good graces are going to fall from the sky next. And even if you could, there are rather few of us who have the freedom and ability to get to those lucky places. A nice smile and the right passport. You've got to have luck on your side from the beginning to be able to keep moving about, trying to catch the golden rain. And as I've said... It's a bad idea to blab about good luck. Luck doesn't like to be presumed upon or spoken of. You can scare it off, or worse, provoke it into turning its dark side to you. So you must let luck pass through your life as if you're oblivious to it. And you must always keep your eye to whatever misfortune might be around the bend. I was once skateboarding home from school, bombing down this steep hill towards my house when I tried to squeeze into a narrow angle where a driveway met the footpath. Instead, I clipped a cement edge and went arse over tit. I was flung into the air and then landed hard on the ground, but I'd tumbled right on top of my backpack, and I was totally unscathed. Whatever I'd stuffed into my bag had broken my fall. When I got home, I found the small plastic tub that was my lunchbox, completely shattered. There were thousands of shards and splinters of red plastic all throughout the backpack. And as I started cleaning out what was left of it, I thought, that could have been me. For a little while, I kept one of those pieces, an isosceles triangle that until mum found it and threw it out, I used as a symbol of how nearly I'd come to death. How nearly we all come to death on a frequent basis. I thought Mum had been a bit unfair since she had her own trusted talisman, a medallion that depicted St Christopher, who is meant to give assistance to any traveller no matter how far they are from home, or how near. Mum kept it in the console of her old Ford laser, which she only ever used to drive us to school a couple of kilometres away. I don't suppose I ever asked... But I wonder how effective St. Chris had seemed to her when another car veered into us while we sat stationary at an intersection one morning, a few hundred metres from home. Perhaps she figured it could have been much worse. We might have been seriously injured if we'd not been under the saint's protective influence. Still, that medallion did not seem so very lucky. Later the laser got stolen in the night and was found burnt out in a mountain town a couple of hours away. In most places to which I've travelled, I've found an intriguing mix of items that have been considered by someone or other as a bringer of fortune or a defender against misfortune. The word talisman has an interesting affiliation with the Greek word telos, which means end point or goal. It probably originally referred to things used in religious rites, and our lucky objects often allude to spiritual instincts. They belong to that murky category of beliefs where religion and superstition overlap. For example, I have always been very fond of that emblem you often find hanging on walls in the eastern Mediterranean, the vortex of blues and whites and blacks that is meant to ward off the evil eye. The upside-down horseshoes and rabbit's feet fall into this category as well. I was also told of the custom somewhere in the British Isles of building a cat's corpse into the walls of a new house. Which struck me as strange, of course, but in some ways typical of the kinds of weird things we do to court good luck. Countless gestures or observations are thought of as having the power to influence fate throughout the world. In one part of the planet, it's considered hazardous to cut a sprig of hawthorn at the wrong time of the year. Elsewhere, seeing an eagle on your right side is a good tiding. The black cat who crosses your path will undo the work of crossing your fingers. These all represent a tremendous wish to do something about what is ordained for us in this world. But when pressed, most of us will admit that we do so in vain. Our powers are limited. Our amulets ineffective. And perhaps we lay stress on our lucky symbols in a way that distracts us from the few true abilities we have to affect the circumstances of ourselves and others. So said a sarcastic Greek friend of mine whilst in the throes of their economic crisis a few years back. He said that although his compatriots throughout history had tried every kind of idol and icon to defend themselves against bad luck, nothing had worked. He went on. Maybe we only needed one statue, one temple, and that to the goddess Nemesis. The antithesis, the enemy of luck give her a few drachma and some sweet biscuits, and maybe she'd have left us alone. And as he said this, I suggested that if I'd had the chance, I might have laid out my chunk of lunchbox plastic at her feet as an offering. As a younger lad, I liked game shows, none more so than Wheel of Fortune. I remember my family making fun of me for having a crush on the supermodel assistant whose job was to turn over letter tiles on a big board, which eventually spelled out the answer that contestants were after. One of the solutions I remember also. It was a place with seven letters. And quickly enough, I nutted it out. It was Hungary. And the joke was that, of course, with my fast metabolism, I would quickly figure out the name of that country. But actually, I didn't want to be the contestant or even the assistant. I wanted to be the host, the master of ceremonies. That omniscient man twirling his moustache knowingly as each spin of the wheel brought everyone closer to the answers which I had known in advance. I didn't want to submit to destiny. I wanted to write it and push it upon everyone else. For the ancient Romans, the anthropomorphized version of chance wasn't a male in a tweed suit. She was a female, and her name, Fortuna, has come down to us almost unchanged. Suitably, she was often pictured carrying a ball, a ship's rudder, or a drinking horn. Often she wore a blindfold, These days we also give her a set of scales, as if she is balancing out the good with the bad, but the Romans knew better. There is no justice in luck. The origins of Fortuna's name aren't certain, but one theory proposes that it comes from an amalgamated word that describes her as she who revolves the year, or maybe the woman who makes the world go round. She took lives or gave blessings almost indiscriminately. She affected the existence of those in the upper echelon as much as those of the poor. Everyone had to endure bad luck or could enjoy an unexpected boon. A promotion might come to one employee and a broken leg to another. Illness swept through the population of a town without consideration for previous circumstances. The world turned. The weather changed. A military coup interrupted planned events. Night followed darkness, and then the sun came up again. Likewise, prosperity and disaster swap places. Fortuna e cieca, the Italians still say. Fortune is blind. She stumbles through like a drunkard, knocking into whomever is nearest, causing all sorts of chaos. In one ancient play, the chorus rants and raves at Fortuna for giving out blessings with a hand that's equally liable to take them away. She puts us into a dangerous and doubtful state, never quite at peace, knowing that fresh storms bloom over the horizon. As the chorus sang, sails swollen with favouring breezes fear further gusts. Whatever fortune has raised on high, she lifts only so she can bring them back down. The seafaring metaphors seem reasonable. Another student of words suggested to me that risk was originally a nautical term, "risicon or riza, which simply stood for anything a sailor might want to avoid at sea. Maritime environments are precarious places for human beings. Those who go to sea develop skills, but storms bigger than the abilities of any sailor may well meet those who are out in the open waters. It's little wonder seafarers are such a superstitious lot, even still. They have seen Fortuna stir up trouble without warning. She makes the water swirl and the winds go wild. There are few more treacherous waters than Bass Strait and the worst shipwreck that ever happened there killed the vast majority of its manifest of 369 passengers. In the winter of 1845, the Cataraqui was dashed against the rocks of King Island. Its only surviving passenger was a 30-year-old man named Solomon Brown. His wife and their four daughters had all died. I often think of him, huddled on the shoreline amidst the debris and the deceased. What kind of philosophy would spring to mind in such a person who had endured such tragedy, whose life had been spared when everyone else's wasn't? There's an equally ancient saying that some have kept using over the years. Fortune favours the brave... It's the kind of proverb that we can expect to hear from people with certain political beliefs. It's like God's on the side of the go-getters, which in turn suggests that those who live on Struggle Street have in some way brought it upon themselves. Seems that more and more often this idea is being worked into public discourse. And to tell the truth, I bloody hate it. It's an excuse to accept injustice and let its perpetrators get away with it. And it is with some satisfaction that I will pass on the tale that the person who may have coined that saying got caught out by his own catchphrase. It bit him on the ass. Fortune favours the brave, said Pliny the Elder, as he stepped into a boat to investigate the eruption of Mount Vesuvius nearly 2,000 years ago. The volcano killed him. It's almost as if Fortuna didn't give a shit about his bravado. Once upon a time, there was a country called Serendip. Somewhere in the Far East, I've read. Although, of course, what is East for most of the world is usually West of where I am. And indeed, if truth be told, anyone could go West to find the Far East, or East to find the West, for the world is a sphere. And if you forgot your compass, you could cross the surface of it any way you liked, till you were happy with what you found. If only you had the time. But I digress. In Serendip, they had a great and mighty king called Jafar. He had three dearly beloved sons, and he thought it was important to give them the best education he possibly could because then they would not only be powerful, but virtuous as well. So he pretended to crack the shits with them and sent them off to a foreign country. But as soon as they landed there, they were caught up in a hunt for a very curious camel. And even though the camel was missing before they ever got the chance to see it, the three princes of Serendip deduced that the camel had a limp, that it was blind in one eye, that it was missing a tooth, that a pregnant woman was riding it, and that one of the panniers it carried had honey in it, and the other had butter. Well, it's a bit of a complicated tale, actually. I'll let you look it up yourself. But the point is that the story of these three princes of Serendip became famous for its instances of crafty guesswork and fortunate timing, and for showing three people who were in the right place at the right time, who had a talent for being lucky. I suspect we all know at least someone who has this same skill. The fable passed through various languages, and the word serendipity was born. This little bundle of syllables sums up the dream of the happy accident, the chance encounter, the special coincidence that is a theme of so many of the stories we read and the films we watch, in which each of us harbour has a secret dream to come upon day after day. I suspect that in the minds of most of us there is an island called Serendip. There, where warm breezes gently ride the waves and the ruler is friendly and capable We find our own fortune. We get the lucky break we've been waiting for. We run into someone we have dearly wanted to get to know, and they're surprisingly at a loss of how to spend the next couple of hours, and so that charming person asks us if we'd like to go and get a glass of wine. As we walk by, someone is placing in the window a handwritten sign advertising a job we have always wanted to do. Or we see the antique book we've been looking for, sold cheaply in an op shop. It is on this island that the ball bounces well, and the dice land as we would hope. It is in this place where we no longer have to regret how things might have turned out otherwise. There are those who like to leave most things to chance. I suppose in some respects it's one of the things I have liked about travel, having less control opening myself up to the possibility of serendipity, letting fate or fortune reveal its face and have a bit more sway. That's how it seems anyway. It's not as if there's a simple dichotomy between choice and chance. So often luck infiltrates our decisions anyway. It may make the final call, often with absolute disregard to our talismans or prayers and I have wondered if good luck doesn't dissipate as we get older, if it's not primarily a companion of youthful travellers. It was getting more and more difficult with each year anyway, but in the past I was travelling with almost no safety net, no phone, no computer, certainly no wads of cash to throw at whatever problems I encountered. And so it was when I stepped off a ferry some years ago, after crossing the Ionian Sea. My father and my brother, I knew, were three hours away in Florence. At the port I stuck a thumb out, and caught a ride with a reluctant Italian couple and their more enthusiastic dog. Now I knew that my dad had booked a hotel room for me, but where exactly I wasn't sure, and as we neared the city they asked where they should drop me off. I said all I knew was that it was a hotel on Via Nazionale. Well, the driver said. That narrows it down to about a hundred places, then. Maybe you can call your dad. (laughs) No, I answered. I don't know his number, and I don't have a telephone. It was getting on dusk as we turned into Via Nazionale. Thousands of tourists milled on the footpaths in front of countless hotels. And the street stretched out into the night. So, the driver said, almost openly mocking me, what are you going to do? I was just saying that he could drop me off anywhere and I'd figure it out from there. When I saw my dad and my brother strolling along the street, Just drop me off here, actually, I said. And I jumped out and greeted my family. Dad and Bucko were surprised, perhaps, definitely amused. And I really think the bloke I'd hitched that ride with was totally pissed off. And you know, fair enough. In that moment I was one of those enviable souls, a happy prince visiting from Serendip. Or maybe just a lucky shit.